This is Recode Media with Peter Kafka. That is me. Today I'm talking to Lee Jin. She is the alternately the godmother of the passion economy. Um, what did the New York Times call you? The it girl of venture Correct. capital a couple of years ago. What's your formal title, Lee Jin? <laughs> um, so I'm the general partner and co-founder of Variant Fund. We're a Web3 investment firm investing in all things across the Web3 stack. Thank you for coming on. I wanted to have you on because we talked last year. I was doing a Web3 explainer probably about, literally about a year ago. Uh, Web3 was very hot. I was trying to explain it to a normal person, and I wanted your insight on it. As people who listen to this podcast know, there is a lot less uh, popular interest in Web3, or seems to be. Uh, my, my understanding is certainly on the VCN, there's a lot less interest in that. And while I spend a lot of time on this podcast talking about what's coming down the pike, I always think it's useful to review back a bit. And I wanted to talk to you about Web3, what happened, where it's going. And, and to go even further back, I think I think before you were talking about Web3, you were best known as someone as sort of the uh, who was a really advocating on behalf of the creator economy or passion mm -hmm. economy. I think those things merged together. So I wanted to talk to you about all of that and where things are going next. Um, you're in Utah at, at the Sundance Film Festival, so I assume that mm -hmm. counts as part of the creator economy. Is there a Web3 component to Sundance? Hmm, I don't think there is really. Might just be a fun place to be. <laughs> it's just a fun place to be. Um, it was also my friend's birthday, so I decided to make the trip out here. Um, but yeah, definitely lots of tie-ins to the creator economy. But yeah, very excited to chat about all of that with you. It's a delight to be here. Should we start by talking about how you got to where you are? Do you want to give me your, mm -hmm. your, your thumbnail biography? Because you have an unusual totally. one for a venture capitalist, I think. Yeah, happy to. So my background is that, let's see, where do I start? I was originally born in Beijing, grew up there for the first half of my childhood, then moved to the US when I was six years old, speeding up many years. After graduation, I found myself in Silicon Valley working as a product manager for an early stage startup. It was a venture-backed startup, and uh, we were building mobile apps for retailers and brands um, to incentivize loyalty and shopping in their stores. Um, so that was really my first real tech job and, and my first taste of Silicon Valley. And after that company exited, I then went to the other side of the table and became an investor. Um, I went to go work at Andreessen Horowitz on the consumer investment team there. Um, That's a that pretty was, big leap, right? To go to go right to Andreessen. That's kind of the Yankees of venture, or one of one of the top tier venture companies. Um, how do you, how do you break into to Andreessen in your first go at VC? It is, and I'm really grateful for the experience there. I was there for four years, investing on the consumer team, um, looking at marketplaces, social, all kinds of consumer categories. The story of how I broke in is also itself, I think, a pretty interesting story, which is that I literally just cold applied on the website, a16z.com, which I think is really atypical for how people break into venture. Usually, as I later learned, people know someone or get a warm intro. Warm intros are kind of like, a, you know, a, the currency of investing. But I didn't have any of those things. And furthermore, I was so young and innocent that I didn't even know what a warm intro was. Mm -hmm. And so I literally thought, you know, people get jobs by applying to them. So let me just go apply online to their jobs. And to their credit, they actually check those job applications. And I heard back from someone there and that kicked off a process that lasted many months and entailed many conversations. But yeah, that is how I broke into VC. And so I started working there in 2016 
spent four years there investing in consumer tech, um, basically met with all of the major marketplace companies, social networking companies, media companies, like all of the consumer categories that were really getting started at that point in time. I, I looked at those rounds and that then paved the way for my interest in the passion economy, as you mentioned. So towards the tail end of my time there, I began writing about this trend of um, what I called the passion economy, which are platforms or marketplaces that help people to monetize their passions, to monetize their individuality. This category would include things like Substack or um, companies like Patreon, anything that would help people to make a living from what it was they were passionate about. I like to write stories or make podcasts or do dance videos or show mm -hmm. off my collection of pet rocks, but I, maybe I could make money from this as well. And there's platforms that let me do that. I was looking through your, through your files and saw you reference, you said at some point the passion economy shouldn't be conflated with the creator economy. To me, it sounds like the mm -hmm. same thing. So what am I missing? So I really view those two terms as related, but not the same, where I view the passion economy as the superset that includes all kinds of work, including creator content creation. Mm -hmm. So the creator economy maps really well to content creation and, and content creation, especially on the social networking platforms. But there are a whole range of other types of skills or expertise that people might have that they can monetize beyond just content creation. So the passion economy would include all of those other verticals. For instance, it could include things like creating your own grocery delivery business locally or starting a coaching business or teaching a course or something like that, something that goes beyond content creation. Um, so that's where I see the nuance between those okay. terms. I think the creator economy is a subset, but the creator economy as a term has also become quite amorphous and yeah it got supersized over the last few yeah, years and definitely. and generally when people are talking about this at least from a uh, investing perspective they're not talking about giving matt iglesias money to write a newsletter they're talking about investing in substack which will help matt iglesias sell his newsletter to people it's the selling the tools not you're not you're not trying to invest Correct. in individual creators yeah investing in software um has been usually where venture investors focus I think there's a interesting conversation to be had around whether there is now an opportunity to invest in creators themselves and how crypto potentially enables creators to become investable. But yes, traditionally, um, the, the focus in terms of investing in the creator economy or the passion economy has been on the tools and platforms and the software enabling many creators to be able to make a living. So you launch your own fund, Atelier. It's $13 million seed mm -hmm. stage fund. On the one hand, you're kind of riding some good waves there. There's an increased in interest in passion slash creator economy stuff. Seed stage is interesting to a lot of people. There's a lot of money floating around. People have to invest in it. Uh, on the flip side, you don't really have a ton of a track record, and you're also uh, raising money during a pandemic, but it seemed to yes. at, least, at least get off the ground. That was a, a really... Um challenging time to raise a new fund. This was May of 2020 that I started Atelier Ventures, which was my first fund and a fund that I did as a solo GP. And I started it to invest against that thesis of the passion economy. So my focus was on these new platforms that would help people to monetize their individuality and their unique skills, raise $13 million, as you said. And I think 
what a lot of folks don't know about that first fund is I was very clear about what the vision that I had was in my mind of the world that I, I wanted to live in and the world that I wanted to support, which was that everyone should be able to be able to monetize their expertise and everyone had something to offer to someone in the world who would be willing to pay for it. But was what I wasn't prescriptive about was the underlying technology to support that vision. And so as new opportunities came to light that I could invest in, I began to be interested in Web3 and new crypto companies that, in my view, were really supporting this vision of the passion economy, but using a different technology stack in order to do so. So during that first year of Atelier Ventures, that was really the collision moment for crypto and consumer tech, which, you know, before that point in time, crypto was really focused on developer tooling or infrastructure. But that was around the time when NFTs took off and DAOs started taking off. And I, I saw those trends and I really saw it to be in support of ultimately this vision of the passion economy. So I oftentimes say that the passion economy is still the end vision of what we're trying to accomplish. It's the what and the how of how we get there is through crypto or distributing ownership to users. And did you essentially merge Atelier with with Variant Fund that's run by Jesse Walden, who also came out of Andreessen and has a crypto background? Mm -hmm. Yeah. So after I finished deploying that first fund, which was a small seed fund of $13 million, I then um, joined forces with Jesse Walden, who was my colleague from Andreessen, along with our third partner, Spencer Noon. And so we ended up raising our second fund together, Variant Fund 2, and now we're on Variant Fund 3. Okay, so we've got the background. I want to go back to the the idea of connecting creators slash passion economy with Web3 and crypto mm -hmm. and NFTs. And I think I have a handle on it and I can see how it makes sense. But can you just lay that out? Why the two are connected in your mind? Perhaps it would be useful as a starting point to give people a grounding of how I view the history and the present moment of the creator economy. Sure. So yeah, rewinding the tape, even though the term the creator economy has really become just in vogue in the last couple of years, it's really this trend that has been playing out over the last decade plus. I like to say that for as long as Web2 has existed, the creator economy has existed. For as long as people have been able to generate and post content on the internet, that was really the inception of the concept of a creator on the internet, even though we didn't really call it that back then. Because you had these simple, lightweight tools that allowed basically anybody with a keyboard and or a broadband mm -hmm. connection to make something that other people could interact exactly. with, consume, read, listen to. That's right. Whether it was blogging or posting on social media platforms um, or starting your own website, like people became a creator early on in the internet's history. But for a long time, they lacked a viable business model. And so for a long time, the creator economy was comprised of kind of hobbyists or people doing it as a labor of love. You could run a blog. Maybe if you got in at the exact right time, you could sell it to someone else who had a bigger blog company and maybe AOL would buy that. But generally, you're either blogging for free for yourself or you were getting paid very little to do it by someone who's running a publishing company. And there were yeah. versions of that throughout the digital economy. Correct. And I think a, a major inflection point in the creator economy came in the early 2010s, I forget exactly precisely which year, but whenever YouTube introduced advertising revenue sharing with YouTube creators. You're talking really to the right that. guy. I made a whole podcast about this, 2007. Oh, cool. Yes. 
2007. For videos, not for podcasts, but for the, the mm-hmm. partnership content. And then they expanded it, I think, in 2010, 2011. Right. Exactly. And I think that was a really legitimizing moment for creators as this segment of influential individuals online through which you know brands or companies wanted to reach larger audiences. They became this conduit to be able to reach end consumers who had an affinity towards whatever the creator represented. Because the original YouTubers were just there, literally just doing it for fun, and then turned out maybe some of them could make money because a brand would pay them something to hold up a can of soda or something in the video. But YouTube wasn't sharing any of its revenue. Once they did that, it's like a 55-45 split. It became feasible, theoretically, for a big swath of people to make some money, maybe not support themselves. And there was a big fight over the rates and and how the split worked, but in theory, open it up. It's weird that almost none of the other platforms have yet to copy that, but we can keep going. Exactly. None of the other platforms have really copied it per se, but I think that model of advertising as how creators support themselves has really become the predominant business model of the creator economy. And, Mm -hmm. And I view YouTube as really a pioneer there. And then more recently, just in the last couple of years, has been the rise of creators as businesses in and of themselves. So there's been this shift of creators as the conduit for another company to sell their wares or to advertise their services. And really creators who have built up this large audience space have now turned their attention to starting to um, productize themselves in different ways and have more direct sources of revenue. So I view that as really a recent phenomenon that is like, the phase of the creator economy that we're in now, which is creators as businesses in their own right. So I was going to get to this later, but um, I guess it's the right time to ask about it. The, one of the reasons I've always sort of raised my eyes or maybe even rolled my eyes when people use words like creator economy, especially as it got bigger and more buzzy and you had Mark Zuckerberg talking about it a couple of years ago, it seemed like we were overselling the promise of what you could do with this for, for an individual creators. And yes, there are lots of examples. I have people who on my show all the time who have, with no background, basically turned themselves into self-supporting YouTube or TikTok or name your 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 name your platform stars, and they're making real money doing it. And in the past, they, they might have been shut out of traditional routes of being able to, they would have had a hard time breaking into Hollywood or whatever, didn't think they wanted to know how to do that. And there's lots of them, but didn't seem like there are millions of them. It seemed mm-hmm. like there's a relatively small number of people who can actually support themselves doing this, let alone make really big money. And that we were collectively overselling the idea, both to the creators who were trying to get into this and, and getting into this sort of race to the bottom for views and and CPMs, and then to the companies that were supposed to get in the middle of this and make money, that they're just, they were oversizing the upside here. Mm-hmm. Am I missing something? Is that a fair, is that a fair analysis? I think analysis? that's a fair characterization of where we are today with the creator economy. And I agree with you that right now it's the case that the creator economy basically follows this power law distribution where most creators are earning very, very little. They they can't make it their full-time job. They have to supplement it with other sources of income. Which, by the way, isn't necessarily bad if that's just like, this is a side gang. It's a thing you like to do. Why not get paid for it? Yeah. And it's great that they can earn anything. It's not. It's like when we told Uber drivers they can make $80,000 a year a few years ago, and it turns out they can't once you take away the subsidy. Yes, that's right. That That is the state of the creator economy today. 
And there are, you know, a handful of like very, very successful creators that I'm sure we all know as like almost household names now. But in general, there is like this missing creator middle class. I wrote about this a couple of years ago um, on my blog and in HBR. Yeah, there there really is no like middle floth of the creator economy. Either you're really successful or you can't make it your full-time thing. And I think this is where crypto comes in. So to introduce that into the conversation, I think if you look at the underlying reasons for why the creator economy earnings distribution looks the way it does today, it's really because of that predominant business model um, of Web2, which is advertising and having to reach like a massive audience um, and be able to monetize on a CPM basis. And so creators need to attain a really large audience to be worthwhile for a brand or an advertiser to work with. Otherwise, they're you know stuck without really a viable business model, or maybe they can sell some products or services or education to their followers, but it's is that a very small scale. And so where I see crypto really enabling and unlocking the next chapter of the creator economy is through this introduction of a brand new, really, concept and capability to the internet, which is digital scarcity. So crypto introduces scarcity to the internet in an entirely new way that has previously never existed. Before crypto, there was no such thing as a scarce piece of content. Everything was infinitely reproducible. You could, Mm -hmm. you know, right click, save, whatever. And the importance of scarcity is paramount because scarcity begets value. It is, it is how we ascribe value to something. When something is scarce, when there are pr- property rights around it, and when we know that something is, is truly ours, that's when we can actually ascribe a value to something. And so crypto, by introducing digital scarcity through tokens, is able to restore pricing power to creators in a way that didn't previously exist when there was no scarcity. And we're seeing this play out now with um, creators selling NFTs that represent different pieces of digital media um, or creators even tokenizing themselves and being able to, you know, have a base of fans who become like quasi investors in their future potential. Tokenizing um, yourself is I think I'm going to make more money than I'm making now. And if you want to give me a loan, basically, or invest in me, I'm going to give you a portion of my earnings going forward. People can sort of specify exactly what you know, investing mm-hmm. in someone's social token entails in terms of what the end benefit is, but that is one possible model. It is essentially like, it's like investing in a company, except uh-huh. you're investing in a person. We'll be right back after a word from a sponsor. This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify. The global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. And we're back. This is why I why Web3 and crypto was sort of on my radar uh, a couple years ago. Your old colleague Chris Dixon wrote about this and the idea of NFTs and the thousand fans. And his pitch was, this allows creative people, people who are making stuff, 
to monetize their work directly, cutting out middlemen and platforms, uh, or at least to some degree. They get to retain more ownership of their work. And that all sounded good to me, or at least interesting. And then the thing I got hung up on, especially over the last year, and I'd have people on this show to talk about this, is on the investor slash consumer side. If I like a band or if I like the work you're doing on your blog, I'm happy to give you money and subscribe um, or whatever, however we want to sort of structure that. But I don't know why it's important that there's a token involved, except there's sort of an investing slash speculation component. And I don't think these those things are bad necessarily. But if I like your work, I, I want to support your work because I like mm-hmm. it um, or because you're selling me something of value I can't get somewhere else. And this is something I had Zach Weinberg on the show last year, a real skeptic of Web3. He's like, if you just take the tokens out, what happens to the business? He's That was his sort of way of like scrutinizing these businesses as, as a sort of a lay person. And that made a lot of sense to me. Like, if you just strip the token part out, it seemed like an interesting way to view this stuff. Like, why do we have mm-hmm. to have the tokens other than that's the whole reason for the economy? But if the, if the point of the economy, if the point of the structure is to allow someone to make cool art and support themselves... Why do we have to introduce crypto and tokens to mm-hmm. it? Why can't we just use credit cards or rocks or whatever else, whatever whatever form of payment sure. we want? Yeah, well, that hadn't already existed before. Mm-hmm. It's you know things like fan clubs, models, yeah. or you know Patreon or donating to someone. But clearly, that wasn't sufficient. There are still huge barriers to entry for new content creators to get started. Most creators weren't making a living under that model, and so. In terms of why token, like why have a token, um, it points back to the idea of scarcity. Like tokens are a way to track ownership. They're like a property rights system for the internet. And you don't necessarily have to speculate on the token. The token can just represent what you own. You own this piece of media that was created by this creator. And and no one can take that away from you because it's Mm -hmm. tracked on a blockchain. And I like to pull in a term that um, my partner Jesse had coined and, and we often bring up, which is this idea of patronage plus. So crypto introduces this concept of patronage plus. So previously, before tokens, we already had patronage on the internet. You could donate to someone, whatever, swipe your credit card, but there was no potential for, for any benefit beyond just patronage. You were supporting someone out of altruism. You were getting you know whatever service in return, but there was no potential for profit beyond mm-hmm. that. And so by purchasing a token, you are also supporting the creator, but with the potential for profit. And I think that has unlocked a lot of investment and capital going towards creators that wouldn't have existed without that plus, without the potential for profit piece. And the flip side to me is I think what we've seen over the last year, and I don't have the numbers in front of me, but every, if you look up NFT sales, you'll mm-hmm. find lots and lots of, of screen grabs and of charts showing a huge boom in NFT sales over the last year. And then it just sort of collapses uh, by mm-hmm. the summer of 2022 as sort of the, the, the air goes out of the at least initial crypto Web3 bubble or whatever that phase we're in. And to me, that sort of illustrates the, the problem with with the token sales and, and ownership, which is if if you truly didn't care about the you know what was going to happen to the value of the token that you own, you, you wouldn't care. You'd still buy this stuff because you like the art or the artist. If you were doing it because you were hoping that the thing was going to go up and to the right, then you'd bail out when the market bailed. So 
now we're now we're into the present slash future of, of your thesis. So this is why I wanted to have you on. So where do we slash you go from here? You think that creator economy is still really important, I'm assuming, and Web3 mm-hmm. is, is, is a big deal still. So how are things going to get fixed to sort of get this thing going again? Because Web3 in particular seems dead in the water at the moment. And there's a lot less people talking about the creator economy than there were a, a year ago. So what, mm-hmm. how do you restart it? How do you reorient where you want to go? I would push back against the characterization that Web3 is dead in the water. I think you're right that there is a ton of volatility in token prices. If you look at the overall volumes, obviously it, it goes up and down. Just as with any nascent technology cycle, there's you know inflows of capital when everyone is very exuberant. And then prices can rapidly collapse as well because the technology has not yet grown to the level of stability or fundamentals to meet that price. But ultimately, that price action is actually really important in catalyzing innovation and build out of that new technology because it attracts a lot of developers, it attracts a lot of users to that ecosystem. The price action meaning that things are going up and to the right. Exactly. Yeah. This this kind of price action is is very cyclical and it's inherent to a lot of new technology um, waves. So I would first say that. And then I would also say that if you look closely at what's happening on the ground in Web3 right now and in the Web3 creator economy, what you'll see is that there is still a ton of creators and users participating that although a lot of the speculators have now been washed out given the price movements, the people who were truly incentivized to be there from the perspective of collecting great art or supporting great artists or wanting to experiment with this new technology, they are still actively making work. They are still selling NFTs. I recently just purchased a song NFT this morning on the platform Sound. Things are still happening. There's still a ton of experimentation and Mm -hmm. innovation going on. And so I, I wouldn't overlook that as you, you know, navigate a lot of the negative headlines. There mm-hmm. there is still a ton of innovation happening. So okay. So let's let's stipulate that it's not dead in the water, that the, a lot of the almost all the hype has gone out the window and I think it's been neatly transferred to the AI boom. Um, I don't think that's entirely a coincidence that pe- that there's a sector of people who were very excited about web three and now excited about AI, but you're a true believer. You're still in it. So what have you learned over the last year plus of both navigating the the boom bust cycle, but also sort of, I'm wondering if you've rethought any of your principles or maybe tactics about, okay, this, this didn't work. We need to work on this. This, mm-hmm. I thought this was going to be good, but it's a blind alley. So let's go backwards and try something else. Have you, have you, are you still thinking the exact same way you were a year, year and a half ago, or have you tweaked it? Yeah, we're constantly evolving in terms of how we think about our thesis and our investing and and the characteristics that we're looking for. So for background, Variant was founded on the thesis of the ownership economy, um, which is this idea that we believe that basically the winning products and services of the future are going to be those that turn their users into owners, that actually make users, owners of those products and services. And if you think back to all of the products that you use right now, um, most of those platforms entail a great deal of user contributions. You know, all the social networking companies are built off of user contributions. They're what gives these platforms utility. But to date, users have not really been rewarded with ownership. 
And ownership means both financial ownership as well as the ability to govern or influence the future directions of these products. And so our vision is really a world in which that changes, in which users become owners of these platforms. And so that is still our high-level vision of the world. That is the mission that we are steering towards. We are really trying to drive towards an internet that is more fair and more meritocratic, where people are actually compensated fairly for the value that they're adding to these platforms. In terms of the lessons learned and how we've iterated on that idea over just the past few years, I think there's been a ton of lessons um, that we've learned. I think the, the first reaction that one might have when hearing the thesis of the ownership economy is like, oh, so it's just like all the companies that we have today, except user-owned, like users own almost like quasi shares in all of these businesses. Right. What if users own Twitter instead of its original owners or now Elon Musk? Exactly. And I think that is an easy sort of initial reaction, but it's probably too skeuomorphic of a version of the world um, for that to actually be the case. What does that mean? <laughs> yeah. So in other words, I think our, our vision of the future is not that like we're just going to recreate all of the existing platforms that make mm -hmm. them user own, but instead user ownership actually unlocks new types of products and services that can't exist in the current paradigm that are uniquely enabled through user ownership. So what does that look like? That entails things like, um, let's say like an example might be new networks that have such a high activation energy or need so much capital to go from zero to one and overcome that bootstrapping challenge that they just couldn't have been built without this new tool in the toolkit of token incentives. Um, so there's a bunch of examples of new networks that are getting started that are leveraging tokens in order to overcome that chicken and egg problem that's inherent to scaling a new marketplace. So that's an example. So many of us would like a new version of Twitter that isn't mm -hmm. owned by Elon Musk, or at least people say that. But we're watching this problem right now, which is, are we all supposed to go to Mastodon or Post or name another service? We go there. It doesn't look like Twitter because there's just a fraction of people there. And so why do you want to spend time there? But if you're not going to go there, someone else isn't going to go there. And so it doesn't go anywhere. And one of the ideas of the Web3 model is that sort of jump starts because a lot of us have incentive to go there financially. So we had a real test case of, of Web3 crypto over the last over the fall, right, where there were a right. lot of people who were very displeased with Elon Musk. It seems like that would have been mm -hmm. the perfect opportunity to have a Web3 Twitter. And unless I'm missing it, we one has not launched. Do you know why we no one ever tried that? It seemed like the perfect try. People perfect, are trying that. Okay, so yeah, what's, yeah, what's a version are, <laughs> of that? There are startups that are building decentralized social networks right now. Um, uh -huh. And as you pointed out, it is this really unique moment in time where I think a lot of people are wondering, like, what comes next? We've had this existing paradigm of closed social networks for almost two decades now. Mm -hmm. Like, is, is this it? What comes after this? Um, and so there are um, lots of developers working on this next generation of social networking. One that I'll highlight is a project that we're actually investors in called Lens Protocol. So Lens Protocol is building an entirely decentralized social graph where all of users' profiles, users' content, their follower relationships are represented as NFTs. And so as a result of that, they're 
truly user-owned, and furthermore, they're portable and composable across applications. So any developer that chooses to build on Lens Protocol could inherit like the, the set of user profiles and relationships that has already been built on this protocol. And so already there are hundreds of application developers building on top of this protocol. They're building everything from a decentralized video sharing network like YouTube to a content curation network to things that resemble Twitter with like status updates. And critically, like all of the pieces of content, all of the social graphs live on chain. And so they're, they're fully portable and users don't have to worry about, you know, lock in or being deplatformed or anything like that. And does that exist now or is it, it does being exist. built? It's already live. There are about a hundred thousand users who have created a profile on Lens Protocol. There are now hundreds of applications built on top of Lens Protocol. Um, these applications range from everything called LensTube to Lenster to Orb. Um mm -hmm. You can check it out by Googling Lens Protocol. They have like a page of all the applications. And what do I need to top. participate in NFT or do, or can I just sign up? Do I? You is, can just what? sign up. You can just sign up with your wallet. Um, they are using the Polygon network. So you'll just have to bridge some ETH over to Polygon, which is an Ethereum scaling solution. But anyone can can create a profile and start using one of these applications. On top. So I was going to get to this Polygon ETH wallet. I'm familiar with the terms, but in part that's because I spent time paying attention to Web3 and try to write about it. I, I downloaded MetaMask uh, a year ago and tried to put money into it and gave up after X number of minutes. And I'm, you know, I know how to turn a computer on and off and I can write about a, a tech in a, in a crude fashion. But it struck me at the time that oh, this is nothing close to something mainstream adoption. And even if lots of people are using it, it's not something a regular person can can immediately sort of plug and play. And one of the things I thought you might tell me that you'd sort of rethought over the last year was, oh, some of this stuff has too many, we need to sort of make this easier for regular people to access before it can ever get any traction. Do you think that that the tech needs to sort of be made more user friendly before it can before it can really grow, or is it a chicken and egg thing, or do you think it's fine as it as is? I think that's a really valid point. I completely agree with you that right now the onboarding flows to participate in a lot of these Web three applications is very clunky and difficult to navigate for a newcomer for someone who is not fluent in Web three. I think it's immensely challenging to get over that hurdle. Like if I were to, you know, ask my mother to go buy an NFT or mint a profile, she probably would have no idea what to do unless I walked her through step by step. So I think, yeah, there in short, like there is a huge opportunity to improve onboarding for users. I think there is two sides of the equation though. One is like, how do we lower the barriers for people to participate and make it much easier to onboard? But the second thing is that we just need to create applications that are compelling enough such that people have an incentive to onboard in the first place. I think I, I wrote a tweet a while ago about how, in my view, the onboarding problem in Web3 is overblown. And really, we don't have an onboarding problem. We have a product market fit problem. We have a problem where the applications in Web3 don't have enough of a pool, enough of like a I'm you know, addressing such a burning need on the part yep. of users where people are willing to to go through those hoops. And I think we've seen examples in the past where it's been the case where there is something that compelling where people are willing to like learn these new technologies. I think mm -hmm. 
during the NFT boom, a ton of people onboarded into the ecosystem despite how clunky it was because they wanted to participate. Um, we've seen this happening with some play to earn games as well, where people in developing countries learn how to use MetaMask and wallets and things like that. So I think it needs to be coupled with compelling applications um, that people are actually going to want to use. It's funny. I was just having this conversation with some folks about VR and AR and how there's no killer app for that stuff yet to make someone at scale shell out to buy the headset, to wear the headset. And I was, because I'm very old, was relating it to Pong back in the 70s or 80s, which was, you know, a console game, but basically a one-use game that you had to buy and put into your house at a time when that wasn't necessarily affordable to a lot of folks. But it was a fun game, so people went out and bought it, and it needs... All this tech needs something that's immediately compelling for people to invest some amount of time into it. When do you think that's going to show up? I think these things always happen faster than we expect them to. Pointing to the last crypto bull run, I think it would have been really difficult to predict that NFTs would take off in the way that they actually did. I think that took a lot of people by surprise. The speed and the magnitude of it, it became almost like this overnight phenomenon where no one knew what an NFT was. And then two weeks later, it was on SNL. And I think the same thing is going to happen in this next cycle where an application that is crypto-based really takes off in a way that I think takes a lot of us by surprise. And glimmers of this are already happening. Like there are already users who are spending a ton of time on these decentralized social networks, even though the number user numbers are really small, the engagement is very vibrant. There are communities that are engaging in co-creation of media or films or books together, incentivized through shared ownership of tokens that represent their ownership of that end product. There are thousands of online communities now that are pulling capital together on chain and deploying that towards different causes or managing it and and buying NFTs together or whatever have you. So there's already glimmers of product market fit happening at small scale. So I think coupled with the infrastructure improvements that we're seeing in crypto, it's it's going to happen quickly. Let me wrap up by asking you a, 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 another version of that question that's also a personal question, which is you put yourself out there as sort of the forefront of creator economy and then added Web3. And it, in the end, you had a big uh, New York Times profile I was referencing at the beginning. And that both helped obviously generate a ton of profile for you, a ton of, of publicity definitely generated some sniping from your peers in the VC business, um, usually more quietly. They don't tend to be that vocal about it. Have you thought about sort of the uh, the pros and cons of being a public face attached to a movement and a time and an investing thesis? And would you do the same thing over again? Or are you happy about where things have landed, at least for now? Hmm. That's a really interesting question. When I left Andreessen Horowitz and started my own fund, to invest in the passion economy, part of what I was trying to do was also to develop extreme empathy with the types of users that I was trying to serve by being a creator myself. And so my playbook in starting my fund was really the creator playbook, except that my audience was founders, it was my LPs, um, the type of content I was putting out there was related to technology and business. But effectively, I was monetizing or building a business off of my brand, um, but that business was a venture capital brand. And so 
I, I think there is no alternative way that I could have envisioned doing it. It was the most authentic way to invest in the creator economy and the future of work because I was living that thesis myself. And so I really have no regrets about it. In terms of being a public figure, well, first of all, I don't think I'm all that public. Like, not that many people know who I am. Well, um, now, but, now they do. Now that you're on the Recode Media podcast. Oh, of course. This is going to change everything. Everything. I'm, I'm, I'm going to have to go into the witness protection program. But ultimately, I've said this before, but I really view my position as a venture capital investor as being in a position of activism, where I really view what I'm doing as activism on behalf of this future vision and mission that we're trying to pull forward. And so being public facing is a critical piece of influencing, you know, what types of companies founders want to start, the directions that they want to build in, the direction that people want to spend their careers contributing towards, and ultimately what consumer users are interested in adopting or open-minded to actually trying in terms of products. And so if any of my public advocacy on behalf of this technology, on behalf of these companies can move the needle even slightly towards that vision of a user-owned web, then I think it is well worth you know any sort of negative side effects that it entails. Is this is coming on this podcast a negative side effect, or, or are we happy about this? <laughs> Depends on how you do the edits, Peter. We don't we don't edit. This goes straight to tape. I told you, Lee Jen. Great to have you on. Um, I'm really glad you did this, um, and I'm sure we will get to meet in real life um, without a screen at some point in the near future. Thanks for coming on. Thanks so much for having me. Thanks to our sponsors for bringing the show to you for free. That's zero dollars. Still the same. Thanks to Travis and Jelani for editing the show, producing the show, and thanks to you guys for listening. We'll see you next week.